0: Today we're going to come to the end of a 16-week journey that we started last October examining our fundamental truths, and before we jump into the message this morning, I just want to say on a personal note a big thank you to everyone who has expressed uh, condolences and uh, their prayers for my family. Uh, if you don't know, my mom passed away a couple of weeks ago, and so I've been down with my dad and uh, just been with him, and so just thank you so much. it has been such an outpouring of uh, messages, of cards, of Uh, people expressing their their prayers and uh, just your your sympathies, and I am so grateful for that. Uh, She was a woman of faith, and so we're grateful to know that she is with the Lord. We had a wonderful time celebrating her life. Uh, and celebrating who she was and who she is in the Lord's presence now. And so I want to thank you for uh, just your your sympathy and your condolences during that season. Uh, My family, my dad, uh, and my my immediate family are all grateful for that, and I am as well. So thank you so much for that. Um, We've been going through these 16 fundamental truths, and uh, there's a, I got a slide with uh, all 16 of them on there. If you uh, are struggling to remember, we've gone through uh, all of these. Today we finally come to the last one, the new heavens and the new earth. If you ever need a refresher on this, All of these with a brief description are on our website under the About section, and you can learn uh, and just be reminded of what we believe, what are the core beliefs that we hold as a church. But today, I have the privilege of talking to you about the new heavens and the new earth. And so to put it colloquially, we're going to be talking this morning about heaven. Now here's the problem with talking about heaven Many of our ideas about what heaven is or what it will be are heavily influenced by popular culture and wishful thinking instead of careful biblical thinking. So if you were to look at a picture of popular culture, we would learn about heaven that all dogs go to heaven Almost all people go to heaven except for a few notoriously evil men like Hitler and Stalin and maybe a few others that you personally dislike. They won't be there either because you don't want them there apparently. No Democrats will be there obviously. And depending on who you are, no Republicans will be there either, right? Uh, So I don't know where that leaves us. When you die, you go to heaven and become an angel and you get wings and Every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. And in heaven, you wear togas, and you sit on clouds, and you play the harp. These are all things that our culture teaches us about heaven. And of course, we know that all of this is just silly, and it's wrong. Getting into heaven isn't about your political party. It certainly isn't based on our arbitrary opinions of who should be there and who shouldn't. It's not based on how evil you were, but... Rather, rather, it's based on whether you confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior and trusted your life to him as part of his kingdom. And when a Christian dies, they go to heaven and they are in the presence of God, but they do not become angels Angels are a totally different kind of being than humans are. The Bible says nothing of togas, nothing of harps, and for that matter it doesn't even say that clouds are particularly associated with heaven. And as to whether all dogs will be there, I'll probably get myself in trouble for this, but I have serious doubts about that as well. So let's consider some of the more common Christian notions about heaven that may be wrong too. Many Christians think of heaven as the place you go when you die. And of course, this is in part true. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 indicates that when the body of a believer dies, his or her spirit is at home in the Lord's presence. But as we've recently seen, that's not your final state. That's not how it ends for you. We will be resurrected, and we will have new bodies. So heaven, in the sense of our eternal state, is not a place of disembodied spirits, but of resurrected men and women. Many speak of heaven as a place of eternal worship. There was a popular uh, worship song when I was a teen called I Could Sing of Your Love Forever. Rather predictably, the chorus went like this. I could sing of your love forever. 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 Now, I'll confess to you that as a young teen male, I sang that song more than once thinking, I don't know if I want to sing forever, especially if it's this song. I'm not sure if I wanna do that. And so I'll just confess that that didn't paint a great idea for me of what heaven was going to be like. We would just sing that over and over and over again. Perhaps that's your idea of heaven. It's an eternal song service. But that's not my idea of eternal bliss. And frankly, that's not even how the Bible describes heaven or our eternal state. We will worship the Lord forever, and there will be singing But worship is not confined to singing, even in heaven. Now, you might think, why does this matter? what's what's the point of of thinking about this? Is it just escapism or wishful thinking? I think it matters for a couple of reasons. For one thing, I think it matters for how we interpret and understand Scripture as a whole. Because the Bible teaches us a story about redemption and about God's glory and our fall from that glory and how we're being restored to that glory. And that story spans from the very beginning to the very end of Scripture. And so the, the the restoration of humanity to God's glory, following our fall, is an important storyline in, in the main storyline in the arc of Scripture. And heaven is a part of that. And so we need to rightly understand what that looks like. If we're going to be restored and redeemed, then it would make sense for the end of the story of restoration and redemption to fit in with the rest of that storyline. And when you read the beginning of the story, there are a lot of details concerning the place that God prepared for people, called the Garden of Eden. That's how we refer to it. Genesis speaks of animals and trees and rivers and precious metals and stones and building materials. It speaks of family and of work, all before the fall. Genesis 2.15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Now this was all lost at the fall, and not only that, but we lost fellowship with God and his purposes for us when God removed Adam from the garden, and as God begins to institute his plan of redemption in the storyline of scripture, we don't just get the idea that God wants to restore us to an eternal song service or just emotional highs once a week on Sundays, we get something much broader, much grander than that. At Genesis 17, 7-8, God promises Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Again, as God begins the promise of redemption, notice there's no language of togas, clouds, harps, or even of singing. It's for kings, for nations, and for the presence of God and a land. God began the fulfillment of that restoration, that promise he made when he freed Israel from slavery in Egypt. He told Moses, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk milk and honey Exodus 38 again God's intention was not to bring them out to a really long church service but to an abundant land and even after God's people failed him and they rejected him over and over again worshipping idols serving false gods the Lord sent prophets like Isaiah to proclaim that his plan was not dead it says in Isaiah chapter 65 for behold I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Nor No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses, and in inhabit them they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit they shall not build and another inhabit they shall not plant and another eat for like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands again god's plan is not described as he unfolds it further it's not described as clouds and singing it's described as rewarding work a holy nation a joyful city family and peace And even though people kept sinning and kept falling short of God's good purposes, and even though they kept failing him, he is faithful. And his plan for redemption didn't change. And the final revelation of what this will look like, its final culmination because of the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection came to the apostle John in Revelation chapter 21. It's recorded and says... mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said behold now listen to this I am making all things new not just song services I am making all things new also he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true this description of heaven is beyond imagination notice especially this line he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a beautiful, personal description of God's love and His presence in the new heavens and the new earth. Right now, we all live with a mixture of sorrow and joy, don't we? In Jesus, we have great joy, but that doesn't mean we don't experience the sorrows of life. We live a life of laughter mixed with tears but not so in heaven. Can you imagine that? I don't think we can imagine it because right now all we know is we know joy, but there's always sorrow with that. We know laughter, but there are tears in our lives. You celebrate your kids and their accomplishments and you watch your parents decline and pass away at the same time. You celebrate your accomplishments at work and at the same time mourn the difficulty the spouse or a brother is having in their job and finding fulfillment, but not so in heaven. And John spells it out because it's hard to imagine what every tear being wiped away will look like. And so he says, death will be no more. There's a tear that's wiped away. So too are mourning and crying and pain. They're all gone. It's just joy. You've never experienced it before. Pure, unadulterated, unmixed joy. Just joy. Notice a couple of things about this place of joy. First, it's a new heavens and a new earth. The direction of this new cosmos would seem to be a restoration of God's purposes for people. Here's what he said the first time around when he created people, Genesis 128, God blessed them. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The implication would seem to be that we will be doing something similar. If God makes a new earth, then we'll be doing something similar in that new earth. If God's only intention was for an eternal song service, why would he recreate earth? Why not just an enormous sanctuary in the sky or something like that? But no, it describes it as a new earth. He's going to make it all the stars, the sky, the universes, the galaxies, and the globe on which we live. He's going to make it all new. And when you couple this with the teachings of Jesus about laying up treasure in heaven, stewardship and rewards of more stewardship and responsibilities in heaven, his parables that talk about being given cities and responsibilities in the kingdom of God, and you, you think about the language the Bible uses to say that we will reign with Christ, you begin to get a bigger picture of what heaven will be. We won't just be standing around singing, I could sing of your love forever like a broken record. We'll be glorifying God in all the multifaceted ways and we should expect more than we can glorify him even now. Will we sing in heaven? Yeah, I hope so. I would like to sing in heaven. Will we only sing in heaven? No, we will do much more than that. There will be meaningful work, but without the toil or the sorrow. There will be relationships, but in perfect harmony and peace. We should probably expect that there will be exploration and there will be discovery. After all, God is omniscient and he is eternal, and so there will always be more for us to know about him and to discover in his new creation. We will not grow weary. We won't get bored. We will have meaningful service in the kingdom of God. I see no reason to think that we won't pursue everything from art to engineering only without the corruption of sin and death that now afflicts everything we do. When the, then we will do it in all of the right ways and only for the glory of God. And that will all be part of a life of eternal worship. Now let's get back to why this matters. Is this anything more than escapism? I think it's much more than that. In fact, I would suggest that you should be much more heavenly-minded, that I should be more heavenly-minded. You should think about heaven more. You should look forward to it more. And there are some ingredients that all of us need for a healthy perspective on life, a healthy Christian thought life. And by setting your mind on the things of heaven, I believe you'll have those ingredients. And the first one is hope. When you're heavenly-minded, it will fill you with hope. And I don't think that having just described and read some of the passages of Scripture, at least, about heaven, I have to elaborate too much on this. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. God's dwelling will be with us. He'll be among his people. We will experience his presence in a more direct and personal way than we ever have on earth. Right now, it can feel like there are ebbs and flows in our spiritual and in our emotional state. Sometimes this creates the feeling that we're closer to God or that we're further from God at different moments. And when we don't have many feelings, we have to walk by faith and obedience. But in heaven, the sense of God's nearness and his presence will be constant and direct. Right now, we may struggle with temptations and sin that we have to put to death. And we can even feel sometimes frustrated with our failures and our weakness. In heaven, Sin will be no more. There will be no frustration due to our weakness, but a complete trust and dependence on God. And all of this should serve to give us hope. And hope is a necessary ingredient for a healthy life, but it's also essential for our faith. Consider Abraham. We read about God's promise to him a few moments ago. Consider his life, and faith of, his life of faith and of obedience. Hebrews eleven eight 8 to 10 puts it this way. It says, by faith... Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of that place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham's faith and obedience were fueled by his hope. He was looking for a better city. You should be more heavenly minded too. We should all be looking for a better city. The city we're looking for, the country that we hope to find where we will finally feel at home is one guaranteed by the resurrection the ascension of Jesus Christ. He was crucified because he did not belong to this world. He was raised because he had paid for our sin and he had paved the way for us to be with God. And he has ascended into heaven where he sits at God's right hand so that he can prepare a place for us that where he is, we may be also. That's hope. And hope builds faith and it builds obedience, which are essential qualities in our lives with God. Because without hope, Who could persevere with Christ? Without hope, who would put sin to death in their lives? Without hope, who would continue in faithful obedience when it's difficult to be obedient? Who would continue to put aside the ways of the world if they did not hope for something better than this world? Hope for something better propels our faith and our obedience. If all we have to look forward to is life on earth, why would anyone be a believer? Why would anyone be a Christian? I know we could say God gives blessings now in this, in this life. He sure does. But with it come a lot of hardships from being a Christian. Comes the attack of the enemy. Persecution from unbelievers. It comes the need to continually walk in righteousness and put sin to death in our lives. None of that would be necessary if we weren't Christians. And if we're a Christian without any hope in the future, it's going to be really hard to live the way that we should. But if you're a Christian who's looking for a better city, it fuels the hope that you have so that you can say, I'm not living for this world, I'm living for the next. Are you living a life fueled by hope? One of the points of our vision is to renew hope. We wanna have a forward-looking expectation for the good things of God for our church and in our lives, both now and in the future. in in eternity. We believe that the best is yet to come in Jesus. But what about in your life? Do you believe that God has good things in store for you in eternity? Do you have a cynical view of life where you're always expecting the worst, always filled with distrust, always filled with doubt about the future? Are you filled with fear concerning the future? Christian, be more heavenly minded. I mean that in the most straightforward sense. Think more about heaven. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your mind on heavenly things Set your mind on things where, where Jesus is. Set your mind on the hope that he will bring to you when he returns. And this will help you to lead a life of faith and obedience. The parallel benefit to hope that being heavenly minded provides is that it also produces meaning. When you're heavenly minded, you'll enjoy meaning. The, the doctrine of the new heavens and new earth provides Some explanation of the human condition and the human longings that we have, as well as the fulfillment of God's good purposes in creation. It it provides closure to the story of creation and fall that we reviewed earlier, that we fell from God's glory, and it provides a closure to that, that God wants to restore us to his glory completely and totally. Totally. Contrary to the cyclical views or the, the going round and round views of many religious thought of new age and philosophies and eastern religions, we believe that God has a definite plan. and He has a goal in mind for the universe, particularly for people. Life will not continue as it is indefinitely, and that's a great thing, isn't it? The life won't just go on as it is. I don't want it to go on like it is right now forever. That wouldn't make any sense. The pains and sufferings of life would feel pointless if we were just going in circles, wouldn't they? How would you convince yourself that your pain, your suffering, your perseverance in Jesus has any meaning at all, has any purpose at all if it just kept going like this, if that was your view of life? But that's not the Christian view. The Christian view is that Jesus is returning. The, he- the new heavens and new earth will be here. We will live with him forever and God will make all these things new. As I shared with you a moment ago, many of you have known, I recently lost my mom. She passed out of this world and went to be with the Lord on Wednesday, March 1st after a year and a half battle with cancer. And to think that life goes on in a circular fashion forever provides no comfort in a situation like that or in the losses that you have. Disney's circle of life doesn't make me feel any better to be honest. And I'm sure it doesn't make you feel any better either. That kind of popular philosophy tries to put a brave face on a bleak reality, but when thought through carefully, it does nothing to lessen the pain of the realities that we all face in our lives. The Bible teaches us something much, much different It doesn't say that we ought to just put on our big boy and big girl pants and face the reality that we're all going to die and pass out of existence and your life will have counted for nothing. And in a couple of decades, no one will probably even remember that you existed unless you've got some kind of genealogy buff in your, as a great, great, great grandson who decides to look you up at the library one day or Google you or something like that. That's not what the Bible teaches our expectation is. Rather, listen to Romans 8, 19 to 24. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This is important to understand as you think about the whole arc of creation and of history. God created the world for us. He made it to put us here, and then he made us rulers of it. And so when we fell, creation fell with us. And since that time, the Bible says, creation groans with longing because it's not what it should be. It does not have the rulers nor the masters that it should have until we are renewed to be the men and women God created us to be. And so in the new heavens and the new earth, the earth will be restored and it will have the lords and the ladies, so to speak, the sovereignty over it that God intended us to have when he first created it. And so creation right now waits for that moment. That's why the apostle Paul describes the longing of the world for this moment when we will be made new. And it says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly. You know that feeling, don't you? If you're a Christian, you know that feeling. You know the feeling of great joy that you had in knowing Jesus, but also the feeling that something is not right, that something's out of place, that I no longer fit in this world, because you were made for another country. You were made for a better city. You've been recreated in Jesus for a better world. And so you groan inwardly through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, waiting eagerly, for your adoption as sons or as daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. This is not absurd bravery in the face of a hopeless situation. This is the cry of creation, and it is the cry of the heart of every believer by the Holy Spirit, because we know that the way things are is not the way that they ought to be. And to live and die without the hope of eternity makes no sense That would mean that your actions are ultimately meaningless. It would mean that morality is ultimately meaningless. That your relationships, your loves, your skills, your pursuits, your interests, your work, and everything else about you is ultimately meaningless because it will all be forgotten and gone. People long for meaning. They want something that's permanent. Believers have an assurance of that meaning through the Spirit's presence. And the whole creation agrees with that longing that we have and longs along with us for the day that we will all be made new. And some people will say that this desire for meaning is just a survival instinct, it's a leftover remnant of evolution or something like that, but that doesn't make any sense. In mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death, or we might add, when Jesus returns. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside, I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. Knowing that there is a new heaven and a new earth coming does not answer all the questions we have about the details of our lives. It doesn't answer the question of why my mom passed away while she was still relatively young, or why you've lost loved ones, or suffered from disease or pain, or or been rejected by friends, or can't seem to find the love that you're looking for, or a host of other questions that sometimes leave us feeling frustrated with how we're living. But what it does do is provide a goal. We might not see how every step fits in the journey, but at least we know we're headed somewhere in particular. What's more, while we don't yet see how each step fits, we can know that this life is not totally disconnected from the next life. Jesus taught us this, Rome, or Matthew 6, 19 to 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This means that what we do in this life matters for eternity. Further, Jesus' parables, and we'll look at a few of these in just a moment, they reveal that what we do with the little we have now has big implications for what we will receive in the new heavens and the new earth. And while our reward there will be greater than we deserve, it won't be totally disconnected from what we do in the present Much like the Apostle Paul said that your body will be sown in weakness and raised in glory, we can also say that what you sow for God in weakness now, your witness, your faith, your service to his kingdom, blessing in others' lives, that will be rewarded with something far more glorious in the future. And if you're faithful with a little now, you'll be given much opportunity in eternity. And we'll think about that more in a moment, but for now, consider how this provides meaning for your life. It means that whatever we do, we should do with all our hearts as unto the Lord because we are ultimately serving him and we're serving his kingdom. We aren't just waiting to die. We are sowing toward eternity. What we do now matters. Let this encourage you. Don't think that you have nothing to offer in God's kingdom. Don't think that you've got nothing to give. You may be weak. That's okay because we all are. Right now, we groan in weakness. We're awaiting the day when we will will be redeemed from this world. But while we wait, we also invest our lives knowing that the present is not totally disconnected from the future. Your decisions, your words, your relationships, your work, your witness all have eternal significance. It's not that they will carry on unchanged forever. There is some discontinuity, thank God, between what we know now and what we will have in the future The perishable must put on the imperishable. But there is also some continuity that gives meaning to our lives. And what we do now matters for eternity. And this leads to motivation, which is the final ingredient of a healthy perspective on life that being heavenly-minded provides. Of course, if your image of heaven is an eternal church service, just singing forever, I don't know how much that motivates you in a life of faithfulness to Christ. I mean, Forgive me if I ruin your idea of the new heavens and the new earth, but I can't imagine that the God who made the mountains and the depths of the ocean that man has yet to explore, who created the wonderful creatures for our benefit and our enjoyment, who thought of sunsets on beaches beaches and coral reefs and galaxies filled with too many stars to count is going to create a new heavens and a new earth where it will just be singing, and that's it. I mean, look at Jesus' parable of the talents from Matthew 25:14 to 21. It says, for it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one went and he dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and he settled accounts with them and he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The parable goes on to describe the reward of the servant with two talents and the punishment of the one who merely buried his talent. What I want you to look at is the reward the master gives to the faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. This means, as we've been saying, that there is some continuity between this life and the next. The reward for faithfulness will be, on, will be beyond what we deserve, but not completely unrelated. And Jesus said that we ought to pray secretly, give secretly, fast secretly, practice our righteousness secretly so that we could be rewarded by our Father who sees what's done in secret. The Bible is clear that we will be rewarded for how we utilize the opportunities and gifts that God gives to us. What was the purpose of Jesus' parable except to motivate his followers toward faithfulness? The new heavens and the new earth will not be a place void of purpose, of growth, and of pleasure. We're not gonna sit around doing the same thing forever, forever and ever, rather we will have meaningful work, relationships, and responsibilities without the pain and toil of our current state. And at least some of what we do and experience there will be affected by what we do with what God has given us right now. So being heavenly minded should motivate us to be good stewards of what God has given to us. We will wanna be aware that our stewardship of what we have now affects our heavenly reward. So we ought to ask this, am I a good steward of what God has given to me? Am I learning to live for his kingdom even while I'm in this world? Am I using the resources and the opportunities that he has given me to advance his kingdom by being a witness, by participating in ministry, uh, in, in, in a community of believers that's pushing forward the gospel of Jesus and financially supporting that proclamation through my giving to missions or giving to the local church? Am I using my talents and time to bless other believers and to call those who don't know to a life of repentance and faith? Consider this. If, as we've been saying, heaven won't just be an eternal song service, but will be a place of constant worship, that means that in heaven, we will worship God through everything that we do. All that we do will bring glory to him. Every endeavor, every relationship, every responsibility, every discovery, it will be an act of worship. Worship will be perfectly integrated into our heavenly existence. And a mindset on things above or being heavenly-minded, can lead us to have a life of better integrated worship right now. The ideal is perfectly integrated worship, that every part of our lives will glorify God. And if that's my goal, that's my intention for the future, that's my meditation, knowing that's where God is bringing me, then my life now will also take on that character, imperfect as my efforts may be. I don't know about you, but sometimes... I find myself frustrated because my worship now is not as complete or as integrated as I know it ought to be. I look up from my work and realize that I've been consumed with details in my mind and it hasn't been set on the Lord as much as it should be. I reflect and realize that my response to someone was maybe not as compassionate or my internal attitudes and reactions were not as patient and loving as they should have been. Sometimes at the end of the day, I get frustrated because I look back and, and do not think that I was as focused on the Lord as I should have been. But being heavenly minded, fixing my eyes on what Christ has secured for my future, can help us to walk by faith and not by sight. It can help me to integrate worship into my life so that my marriage and tucking my kids into bed and that unexpected text and my response to someone's unrealistic expectations of me all become opportunities for worship through a life of obedience to the Lord because I know where God is taking me is a place where all that I do will be perfectly glorifying to Him and perfectly worshipful to Him. And if my mind is set on that, that's the goal, then won't my my direction be determined by my destination? If that's where I'm heading, a place of totally integrated worship, my life is an offering of worship to the Lord, then won't the way that I lead my life now be pointing me and directing me more and more toward that goal? That's where I'm going, and the destination determines the direction. Have your feet began to drag in the work of the Lord? Perhaps you've been feeling apathetic. Your passion for Christ has waned. Maybe you aren't living a life of integrated worship, but you've confined worship to 90 minutes on a Sunday morning maybe the pain of your life or some opposition that you've been experiencing has been weighing so heavily on you that you feel discouraged and downhearted, I want to encourage you to look forward and to look up. If we persevere in our faith, the reward will be far greater than the difficulties that we endure right now. Our hope in heaven should motivate us because we recognize that God is leading us to some place far better than where we currently are. And our prayer is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And isn't the first place that that prayer should be taking place in in the life of the believer, in the believer's life? Isn't the first place that I would say, your kingdom come and your will be done, my own existence and my own life And so if our hearts and our minds are set on heaven, then our prayer is going to be, God, I want your kingdom. But I don't just want to experience it in the future. I also want what you have to give me now. And I want to live a life that integrates worship into all that I do right now. Every human being needs hope to believe that the future is bright. They need meaning to know that life isn't just an illusion but actually matters. They need motivation a reason to keep moving forward with passion. And Christians We have these things because of the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. Our future is bright and it's affected by what we do now which gives us meaning and motivation. I wanna ask you very simply this morning as the worship team comes, are you lacking hope? Has sorrow or anxiety so gripped your heart that it, it feels like you can't look forward anymore? Like all you can do is try to manage the moment. Manage the day. Try to manage the internal pain that you're feeling. I know that it might seem like wishful thinking. You might think, well, all he's telling me to do is to imagine my problem away. I'm not telling you to imagine your problem away. Your problem is real. It's probably very, very painful. But what I want to encourage you today, Christian, to do is to be more heavenly minded. To set your mind on things above. You're discouraged, you're downhearted, you're, you're dragging in faith. Set your mind on the hope that we have in the future, not just singing songs forever on clouds and togas with harps, because that's not a lot of hope if, if we're being honest but on a future where your life is perfectly integrated into the worship and the glory of God, where tears will be no more, where there will be no more sorrow, where joy will not be mixed with tears, where laughter will not be mixed with crying and pain, set your heart on those things, set your hope on those things, and you will, I think, find that it brings joy in the midst of your sorrow and that it also brings motivation for you to continue on in perseverance in your faith. Are you struggling with meaning Wondering if your life counts for anything. Do, you, do your days sometimes feel a bit pointless? Do you feel aimless, like you're lacking direction? Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. This is an ultimate goal. You have an ultimate goal for your life. Your life is not just the endless cycle that you might feel like it is right now where your days blur together and you feel depressed and and you're you're turned so inward into yourself that you don't perceive what's going on in the rest of the world. And it seems like day goes on and day goes on. It's the same thing one day after another. And there's not a lot of hope in that. There's not a lot of meaning in it. And there's not a lot of motivation in it. But that is not what God has called you to. Instead, he has called you to a vision that started in Genesis as soon as we fell from his glory where he said, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to call you out of darkness into my light and I'm preparing a place for you. He wants you to know you have meaning because he's made meaning for you and because life does not end with a vicious cycle but because life is pointed in a particular direction. Jesus is coming back. And if he doesn't get here before you die and your faith is in him, then you'll go to be with him. And when he returns, you'll be resurrected as well. And this is our hope. Eternal life with him. Christian, set your mind on things above. God will give direction for your life when your attention is on him. And you've submitted to him. And you should also know that how you live now matters in eternity. It doesn't just disappear your life isn't just a poof of smoke and then, it's, and then it's gone. Yes, it's brief. Yes, it's, it's short. But God has redeemed it. And so it matters in eternity what you, did, what you do. And so live like it counts because it does count. Are you feeling apathetic? Has your energy or your effort level in Christ fallen? You were once passionate about God's kingdom, but that zeal seems to have faded. You find yourself dragging. Don't forget the new heavens and the new earth, Christian. Don't turn your attention away from them as if they don't provide real motivation. They're just wishful thinking. No, 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 no. If you believe Jesus died and rose again, then you also believe the corollary of that, that he went away to prepare a place for you. There's a new heaven and a new earth coming, and you'll dwell with God in righteousness there. Let that motivate you toward passionate pursuit of his kingdom and the passionate proclamation that his kingdom has come. Don't forget that we're not just working for the fruit that we can see now, but for the fruit that will remain for eternity. Don't forget that we are looking for a better city in which righteousness dwells. I wasn't sure how to ask you to respond today because I don't know how to have you come forward and pray that I'll have my mind set more on heaven because really it's a matter of deciding I'm gonna think more about the things of God. So this is what I wanna do. We've talked this morning about what, what, Setting our minds on the future kingdom of God, the new heavens and new earth should do in our lives, it provides hope, it gives us meaning, and it provides motivation. And I just wanna ask you if, if, as I spoke about those things just a moment ago, and you just said, I need hope in my life. I've been lacking that. I've lacked expectation and anticipation about what God is doing. I've lacked Hope in the sense that I've been filled with despair and depression and I've allowed fear to so grip my heart that I can't see what's going on outside. I mean, I'm gonna ask if you would just respond by standing and we're gonna do something in just a moment, but if that's you, you need hope if you would just stand. Maybe you didn't identify so much with that, but you'd say, I feel like my life has lacked meaning. I feel like it's just kind of been going around in a circle without a lot of, of direction or purpose and I just feel like there's a lack of meaning in my heart. I feel like there's a lack of meaning and of substance, of purpose. I can't discern God's direction. I'm I'm struggling to figure out what my life is for, what it means. If that's you, you've been struggling with that, I'm going to ask you to stand as well. And finally, if motivation is it for you, maybe you'd say, man, I, I believe all these things and I have hope in the future, but my motivation for the kingdom of God is just, it's fallen off a bit. I'm not as passionate as I once was. I'm not filled with zeal as I once was and I want to be filled with a zeal for his kingdom, with a passion for the things of God, with a passion for the proclamation of the good news, so that others know his purposes, his plans, the meaning that he wants to bring to their lives, then I'm going to ask you to stand as well. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read to you, because the idea is we're going to set our mind on things above. How do you do that? The Bible says this, faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of God. So I just want to read to you a few of the passages of the promises of the future that God has that's spelled out in Scripture. And as I do, you just close your eyes, if you would, just so that you're not distracted and set your mind on these things. Set your mind on things above. Revelation chapter 22, one through five. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. and at peace. John 14, 1-3, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Hebrews 13, 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Hebrews ten thirty-two to 36, but recall the former days when you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Philippians 3, 20 to 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Romans eight nineteen to 25. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. But the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water.